0: What you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, well you might find you get what you need.
1: Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John <coughs> Lobel, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m., and you can catch our back shows at visionaries.podbean.com. So today, uh, our guest is Jonathan Haidt. Jonathan, you there?
0: (laughs) Um, It's actually Greg Lukianoff, um, the other author of of Coddling the American Mind.
1: So Jonathan uh, Haidt and Greg Lukianoff are authors of The Coddling of the American Mind, how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. So, Greg, tell us about your book, tell us about Fire, and tell us about the reception you've been getting.
0: Um, so, The Coddling of the American Mind actually uh, I started uh, the process for me re- writing it. Started way back in 2007, um, when I jokingly say I was lucky to have a very severe depression um, that uh, got me hospitalized. But um, on good good news, got me to start doing cognitive behavioral therapy. And at the time, I was already six years into a career um, defending student and professor free speech on college campuses. And while I was doing Cognitive behavioral therapy. I was learning all of these techniques for sort of talking back to the more depressed or anxious parts of your mind, um, and, and the technique is primarily one that tells you um, when you when you say you're in great danger or you catastrophize, it gives you techniques for kind of talking back to the things that that, that kind of that can make you anxious and depressed. And I observed uh, on campus that it felt like administrators were kind of acting out these sort of um, uh, cognitive distortions as they're known. Um, one way was with speech codes, another way was with speech zones, um, essentially telling students at you know, countless universities that they had to limit their protest to tiny little areas on campus, sometimes as small as a 20- foot gazebo um, at Texas Tech University, for example, um, that if they didn't really sort of rein things in horrible uh, a parade of horribles would happen and back in 2007 um i was like okay well it's administrators shouldn't be you know giving this exaggerated sense of threat to students um from things as uh, as a, as essential a as speech but at least the students aren't buying it they 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 were very skeptical um of uh, kind of the the anti-speech um efforts sometimes of um of administrators and that was the case for almost my entire career but sometime around 2013 2014 we noticed a shift um students were increasingly demanding speech codes they were increasingly demanding that uh, uh speakers be disinvited Um, and what, what it made it very unique was that they were using sort of a medicalized reason for it, That not that I find this person offensive or repugnant or bigoted, but rather having this person on my campus or having this newspaper be allowed or having this administrator continue to be uh, working on staff is in a sense medically dangerous to me, that that I could actually be harmed by it. Was that that weird or what? It, it's it, it's also just wrong-headed, and and from someone who you know recovered from uh, depression, you know I, I was like, okay, this is not what a clinical psychologist would tell you. At least I don't think it would be. So I, I talked, I contacted my then recent friend Jonathan Hite to talk about how this is. This is exactly the opposite of what a clinical psychologist would tell you. That you, 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 you know, you don't tell people that if you're afraid of something, do everything in your power to absolutely always avoid, avoid it as a way of getting over it. That's just not what, what what a psychologist would say. So we wrote an article in the in the middle of 2015 about it, um, called "Coddling the American Mind." And even though it was you know very well read, it became the second most read cover story in the history of the Atlantic for a while there. Um, things just seem to get worse on campus for a couple of years um, up until today. So the book is really trying to figure out what changed in twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen, um, and we've we discovered some really uh, interesting things.
1: So uh, in the introduction to your book, you have a, a great story of uh, going to a guru, which is fictional, but uh, right. and he he presents you with. Three major falsehoods, so sort of the foundation for your book. So what are the three major falsehoods?
0: Um, The first one is, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Um, The second one is, always trust your feelings. And the third one is, the world is divided into good people and evil people and the reason we set it up this way was because our original article was essentially saying it's as if we are giving the worst psychological advice to a generation of students it's as if we are teaching them that we're wondering why there's been such a spike in anxiety depression and polarization among a generation without considering the fact that we may not be teaching a generation the intellectual habits of anxiety depression and polarization
1: Mm. so the, um, uh let's go on for a moment with uh, uh, what doesn't kill us makes us weaker. And some of the examples you give in the book, and I guess some of the things that you address at FIRE. So um, before we go on, tell us what FIRE is and where, what the web address is.
0: Sure. It's, uh, it's thefire.org. Uh, um we were founded back in 1999 we defend free speech academic freedom due process on campus um you know we've def- defended at this point thousands of students across the country and i think um you know a slightly smaller number of professors just because there are fewer of them um and our cases are uh <laughs> I'm a First Amendment lawyer. I used to uh, I interned at the ACLU of Northern California, and uh, you know some of the cases we would get at the ACLU of Northern California tended to be a little bit tough. You know, like at least you could understand why someone would be offended. It, the, the kind of cases, for the most part, I deal with on campus are things like really overbroad speech codes, which are laughably unconstitutional, and ridiculous policies like the speech zones I've already mentioned. Um, so, if uh, there are students out there or professors listening, if you get in trouble for what you say. Um, either on campus or off uh, Contact thefire.org And we may be able to help
1: So let me ask uh, I, I usually try to steer clear of politics on this show mm-hmm. But yep. are you Is FIRE perceived as a right-wing or conservative site And how would you describe its politics
0: you know it, it, it definitely depending on whether or not you like us <laughs> people will throw kind of whatever aspersions they want um sometimes we get got uh, get, get called conservative sometimes we get called left wing um it all depends on um how intellectually honest people are being. But if you look at the cases we've taken over the years, it becomes immediately obvious that we're uh nonpartisan and politically neutral, um, except for the fact that we absolutely believe in freedom of speech, academic freedom. Um and, and due process. And over the years, you know, we've we've defended people on every possible point on the political spectrum, but I do like to stress that even though kind of the more politicized cases tend to get more ink in the press, um, there's sort of a big middle of cases in which the expression isn't particularly political, and it's more or less just a battle of, I don't like this student, or I don't like this professor, between a professor and the administration.
1: So, uh, <clears throat> I'm I'm a professor, mm-hmm. and my school has not as yet, (laughs) Uh, had a problem with this. Uh, So I teach at uh, an art and architecture school, and my architecture students don't sleep one night a week. So, you know, my school is really busy, um, engaged with the discipline. You know, the kids are there because they want to be architects, not because they don't know what they want to do. So yep. we've been lucky so far, but I do read academic journals and I have followed some of these stories. And for our audience members who have not encountered some of these stories, tell us some of the, uh, about some of the most noteworthy cases that have uh, come across your desk at FIRE.
0: Oh, goodness. Um, uh, there's tons. Um, I'll start with one that sort of uh, goes against people's sort of political expectations, what you see on campus. Now, um, we talk a lot about sort of like the medicalization of rationales for, for, for censorship. Um, but at the same time, um, University of Northern Michigan um, started sending warning letters, uh, that you'll, warnings that you'll be disciplined to any student who went and sought uh, psychological counseling um at school uh, and the warning letters were saying um, you know if you're considering self-harm it, you'll be punished if you talk about this to any of any of your fellow students and we looked at this and we're like and I know where this comes from this comp- the, this comes from this sort of like avoid lawsuits at all costs, and someone in the administration had misunderstood the correlation when it comes to suicide um, clusters. That essentially, if like someone commits suicide on campus, unfortunately, there tends to be a little, or, or just you know, out in the society at large, um, there tends to be a little. Uh, sometimes there, there additional ones follow, but there's no evidence at all that talking about these thoughts um, influence people um to to kill themselves. So what was so striking to us was this was a case where they were talking to people who were coming in good faith to counseling which they believed was private um to talk about anxiety and depression and then you have top administrators saying essentially, oh you're depressed. By the way, you should uh, isolate yourself from your friends and you're a burden on your friends. Um so and and the thing is we deal with really kind of surreal cases uh, on a pretty regular basis.
1: Um, so uh, let's see. What are some of the most prominent ones? What's what is it? Claremont uh, had a big case. Is uh, am I remembering that correctly? Well, uh, there, there, there,
0: there, there's actually like uh, the Claremont Consortium has had a, a, like probably about three of them. One of them was uh, a conservative pundit um, or scholar, Heather uh, McDonald, It came out to give a speech. I believe it was at Claremont McKenna. Um, but one of the schools in the Claremont consortium in, in southern california very prestigious schools for those of you who aren't familiar with them I, I i wasn't before i lived on the west coast and suddenly got real appreciation for them she was invited um, to talk about a book that was uh, uh that was indefe- more or less in defense of um, you know police more you know, but, uh, a controversial topic on a lot of campuses um, but nonetheless uh she, when she went there the her her audit, the auditorium she was speaking in was completely surrounded students wouldn't let uh and protesters wouldn't let anybody go to her talk um and then they sort of ship, you know uh, chased her to the place where she was actually going to uh, live stream and you know banging on the windows and essentially um they prevented her talk from going on in anything other than live stream like no no student could actually get in mm. um, to the speech and you know that and that's something that is newish in my experience, I know there are protests like that in in, in the seventies but in, during my entire career generally if you didn't like a speaker you might go and ask some tough questions that to me is the most you know productive the most sort of like respectful of the way you actually are supposed to conduct you know difficult uh discussions on campus or you go, or you protest them but you don't try to shut them down you don't right. try to shout them down that's that's not uh, that, that isn't uh you know what a university what university students should be doing tough questions absolutely um blocking people from getting in
1: no. Right. So, a major theme of your book, uh, with the name I guess borrowed from Taleb, is mm. <coughs> anti-fragile. So, mm. explain for our audience in the concept in your book between fragile, not fragile, and anti-fragile.
0: Um, yeah, uh, we, we really were impressed by um, uh, the, the, the Nassim Taleb's idea of anti-fragility. And essentially, uh, and, I, and I recommend the book to everybody, but essentially he says that we didn't have a word in English for something that isn't just um, robust, isn't just you know resilient, but rather something that needs stressors and shocks to live, thrive, and improve. And that's really kind of striking that we don't have a single word for that, Mm. because you know, to a degree, the human body is anti-fragile. If we, uh, if you send someone up into space and they have no gravity, your body atrophies really quickly. Meanwhile, if you know people just walk every day or people engage in exercise, they become much healthier. That's you know, that's uncontroversial. But I also think that um, anti-fragile. So we talk about anti-fragility of individuals, and we should think of ourselves as being beings that benefit from um in many cases from stressors that the sort of fear of stressors can actually be really unhealthy ultimately but we also think of anti-fragility in terms of uh freedom of speech that, that essentially ideas get better in a system where they're uh subjected to criticism um, and that this is whole, John Roush's idea of liberal science that essentially um, a, one of the reasons why you know we had so much progress after discovering the scientific method was because it was this open-ended system where basically anybody who could uh hear about your theory had the right to say hey I think you might be wrong on that and even if the person who's saying you're wrong is wrong themselves this constant checking and rechecking um does a lot better to, uh, um Job of producing knowledge than, say, you know, superstition or um, sort of a, a, a basic ancient beliefs.
1: So your book goes far beyond <laughs> just looking at what's going on on some college campuses and looks at, <clears throat> to use that word, child rearing. And I was talking to my wife about this. When my wife was a little girl, uh, first, second, third grade, she <laughs> lived in Panama. And she uh-huh. walked to school through the jungle, seeing yeah. giant, uh, colorful birds, bananas on trees. I walked to school um, all the way to, well, junior high and high, I took my bike. <laughs> but uh-huh. I walked to school before that, from the beginning all the way to uh, the 12th grade. And um, so I understand now parents can be arrested for letting their kids walk to school.
0: Yeah. Um, so, two of our favorite chapters in the whole book um, were the parenting chapters. We talk about how we're sort of doing kids a disservice by raising them as if they are fragile, as opposed to anti-fragile. Um, and uh, we we interviewed three uh, experts uh, because you know we're not experts in parenting ourselves, and uh, what we learned tremendously from it and while some of this you know some of this uh, protecting kids protecting kids comes from parents and also peer pressure from other parents the scariest part of it is that some of it comes from people getting arrested and that's the first thing you have to stop and that we've, that, that, there's probably a dozen you know examples of it um uh, at this point probably more where you know students are reporting or where parents are reporting that they let their student walk to school um, you know and they're arrested i think it was i think it was a 10 year old in this case and i was certainly you know going Far and out, far and wide. By the time I was ten, sure. um, also really sad incidences of, you know, working mother letting her. Son play in the um, in the nearby um, uh, 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 the, the nearby park while she worked, and she got arrested for for letting her, her her kid play in a park by himself not far from where she where she worked, and all so first and foremost the only way you're going to actually get people to let to allow for the unstructured play and the unsupervised time that we discovered is so essential to raising you know not not just happy and healthy kids but ones that are you know less prone to depression and more Creative, is first first step is you have to make sure that people who are engaged in you know what is now called free range parenting, which was just the way any any person before you know 1990 was brought up, um, doesn't get arrested <laughs> just for letting their kid Eesh. ride their bike to school, for example.
1: Right. So um, the tell us some more about what you perceive going on on college campuses, how it's changed. Uh, What Kids Are Expecting. I I just noticed, I just printed it out this morning, uh, the current issue of um, Psychology Today headline, Declining Student Resilience, a Serious Problem for Colleges. So I guess the um, effects of your book is spreading I see it's uh, number one in some categories on Amazon. It's around number eight or something like that on New York Times Specialist. So, how are people reacting to your book? What kinds of conversations is it starting?
0: You know, so far it's been it, it's been uh, m- mostly extremely positive because a, l- a lot of parents see um, are aware of it and they're aware that something is has kind of gone wrong. That that essentially we've allowed. Um, ourselves as sort of schedule kids from you know 6 a.m. to t- 10 p.m. never let them out of our sight, and then wonder why they feel disempowered. You know, wonder why they feel depressed and anxious and like they're not uh, they're not autonomous. It's partially because we're not allowing them to be. Um, so uh, so when, uh, although a lot of people think that uh, when they hear the title, which by the way, we can remember, neither author is actually a particular fan of our own title. Um, they think that we're actually picking on the the younger people and really what we're saying is that my generation your generation the the generation of parents um... have with the best of intentions made some really serious mistakes in in, in the way we parent and what and an interesting parallel um, is that uh, the, there's a great book called Actuung Baby" by Sarah Zasky that talks about the way Germans, in the wake of you know their their, their horrible experiences with totalitarianism, committed to this um, of uh, a childhood philosophy of trying to raise extremely independent kids. Mm. And that even though the parents find it difficult, they, you know everything from the playgrounds are riskier. To they try to you know let their kids go to camp at a at a much younger age, have a lot more, uh, have committed to a lot more independence. Meanwhile, you know. Uh, Germany, which is known for its kind of stereotypes as be authoritarian, and America is the home of Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. We've become much more um, controlling of, of, of our kids' lives. So part of the reception, particularly by parents, K through 12, and university presidents, has been pretty pretty great.
1: Good. Well, I uh, I appreciate that point of view. I recall when I went off to college. The uh, uh, Columbia University publication, I went to Penn, but my parents went to Columbia, and they got mm-hmm. a publication that said, the current generation of students, this was, uh, <laughs> I'll give it away, 1959, I uh-huh. went to college. But <clears throat> there was an article on how kids that went to good public schools did much better in college, than the kids who went to top private schools, because at the private schools, they were um, sleepover, you know, boarding schools. They were told what time to go to bed. And oh, wow. they didn't develop a good self-regulation. When they got yep. off to college, they didn't know when to stop drinking and when to go to bed. <laughs> uh, whereas the public school kids had been learning that all along. Yep. And the other part of it is, you know, something you mentioned just briefly in the book, but one criticism I would have of my parents, something they should have done for me, was send me away to overnight camp. Yep. Because y- you can see how kids at a young age have to quickly figure out how to negotiate the world.
0: Yep. Yeah. Uh, that that was one of the more interesting things i used to very much be in the camp of people who um thought that the the american school year was too short and that we could maybe we should consider drastically reducing summer vacation um but the real surprising thing uh in writing this book the more research i did the more i came around to wow actually We need more of it, if anything else. And one of the one of the most surprising things I read was, uh, you know, in a a book called *The Importance of Being Little*. uh, A child psychologist' real strong argument that summer camp, overnight summer camp, that is sort of general purpose, is one of the best things you can do do for your kids. Partially because it lets them develop that sense of, you know, the psychological term locus of control. Also, kind of strongly related to autonomy. I mean, and I experienced this myself. I I, I felt like I had superpowers compared to my classmates. I went to American University um, in D.C., but I was a scholarship student, and I'd been working since I was, you know, literally eleven. You know, I don't think of it as any particular hardship, but at the same time, you know, by the time I was going to college, I'd had. I mean, probably a little excessive amount of personal freedom by the time right. I got there, but but it was my kind of my superpower. I showed up kind of like, yeah, I'm not like the the novelty of personal freedom was over, and I watched so many of these other students just kind of spiral like you know, moths to the flame with the, with the drinking and the partying because um, they didn't know how to self-regulate.
1: Right. My my late wife, uh, her father, uh, was an academic and. They all – her parents and she went off to Europe to travel one summer. At the end Mm -hmm. of the summer, he went off and his wife went off to his uh, um, Guggenheim or whatever the fellowship was. And they put her on a train to Switzerland to spend the 11th grade um, in a Swiss boarding school. And Mm -hmm. she said, whoa! (laughs) And then – and she said, after that, she she just realized she could handle anything, oh, and yeah. she traveled all over the world. But and I see my students today, um, starting uh, maybe oh twenty thirty years ago. You know, I had students who got out of Bosnia during the war, yeah. who were Vietnamese boat people, who mm-hmm. um, and today uh, I don't know how good an idea it is, but. My school, like many schools, is 20 percent Chinese, not mm-hmm. Chinese Americans, but Chinese from China. And yep. there used to be a language problem with them, but no more because they go to high school, and they taking the high school is run in English. But mm-hmm. here are these people that got here from another continent, and mm-hmm. so um, they're going to have uh, a lot more self-sufficiency, a lot more ability to handle problems
0: yeah but also per perspective helps too. I mean, for me, the thing that gave me the best perspective was the fact that. Um, no matter how bad things have been you know in, in, in my lifetime um, I always remember my dad was born in 1926 as a refugee in Yugoslavia mm-hmm. his dad died when he was six he was given away by his mother it, 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 my, my dad's story is a real horror story um, but at the same time he can tell it with sort of like you know some parts of it are very sad but with sort of a sense of humor and you know talk about the good parts of it um, but that always gave, gave me a really strong sense of perspective um, which I think sometimes Times um, is really hard to have unless you, you have someone very close to you who who can provide it. Um, but that's one of the reasons why we advocate for um, some of the lessons, some of the not not just the the treatment of cognitive behavioral therapy, but some of the larger lessons of cognitive behavioral therapy as a way to sort of. You know, talk yourself down and give yourself perspective, um, so that rather than you can go out and accomplish, you can change, you, you can be the change that you want in the world without having to succumb to anxiety, crippling anxiety and depression. So,
1: tell us, you've mentioned it several times. So, what is cognitive therapy?
0: Um, cognitive therapy is essentially um uh, at least the version of the that's the, the, the most popular um, is essentially every day you uh, write down on on a piece of paper um, when you have sort of like particularly distressing thoughts, um, and you, and you write down, you know, uh, you verbalize kind of what they are um, on a piece of paper, and so an example of this for those of us who are prone to anxiety and depression, um, they could be something like, you know, you go on a date, it doesn't go particularly well, and you're like, oh my god, I'm going to die alone. I'm never going to find somebody. Um, this person hates me. All of this kind of like, it, you know, exaggerated stuff that might have a kernel of truth in it, but the same time you're you're hitting it this really kind of you know high high pitch, and right there I just gave examples of uh, cognitive distortions which include you know catastrophizing, mind reading, um, uh, fortune telling which is telling you, you know what the future is going to look like, and these are all defined um, cognitive distortions in. Um, uh, in manuals about CBT, we include these examples in the, in, in the book as well. And what's really kind of profound is that if you get into the habit of talking back to those kind of r- sort of more uh, r- uh, exaggerated. Um, uh automatic thoughts it's a, it's a, it's a really effective treatment for anxiety and depression it's absolutely changed uh, changed my life but one of the reasons why i think it's so profound is it's essentially sort of the practice of you know ancient uh practice of stoicism and some aspects of buddhism are very similar uh in, in, in the way they teach you your relationship uh to your thoughts that you are that you are not your thoughts so one thing that John and I both try to say is that whether you're depressed or not, whether you're anxious or not, whether you, uh, you, you like anything that has therapy attached to it, the lessons of, of cognitive behavioral therapy, the idea of cognitive distortions, are, are, provide a good roadmap for how to argue fairly with yourself and how to argue fairly even with each other.
1: Oh, interesting. So um, in terms of this catastrophizing, going back to our current generation of students, One of the um, commentaries on your uh, book that I saw in an academic – online academic site I was looking at talked about – accused you of not realistically um, assessing the difficulties students have today. And, of course, there's issues of student loans and money and things Mm -hmm. like that. And I think, what are they talking about? I had it pretty easy, but – If I look at my parents, you know, my my mother, a couple of quotes from my mother, like, um, uh, I decided I could get pregnant when Roosevelt got elected. (laughs) You know, then it would be okay. And then (laughs) there was a good chance Hitler and Tojo would be shaking hands in Chicago. Right. And, you know, she was working uh, as a typist at an insurance company, and a woman near her fell over dead. Oh my from god. from starvation, and after wow. that, the insurance company made it was during the depression, uh-huh. and and uh, after that, the insurance company made sure they had uh, you know the company provided lunch for everybody. Oh my god! Uh, so we hear things like statistics, like X percent of students suffer from hunger insecurity. Mm-hmm. You know, like not even hunger. But worries that they might be hungry. Well, yep. yeah. I mean, you know, it's rough on some students, and we should have policies to help them. But mm-hmm. how many students fall over dead from yeah. starvation today? I mean, that that actually happened in our parents' generation. Uh, well, it, you, your father in Yugoslavia. I mean, how many of his friends didn't even survive?
0: Yeah, an awful lot of them. Unfortunately, a whole, a whole village um, that, he, that he lived in briefly doesn't exist anymore.
1: Yeah. So uh the this um you know we, we shouldn't belittle anybody's no. difficulties but we should um kind of have try to have a realistic assessment of uh the circumstances under which we're actually functioning
0: well and that's uh, and, and you know uh, we, we get that argument a lot, and it's hard for us to take it too too seriously that that essentially you know the authors are just saying kids these days you know um and and if you read the book it's kind of like we, I, if we bend over backwards to try to be as compassionate and take as seriously, the very real mental health problems that we're seeing on campus um you know anxiety and depression uh, self reports of of mental mental issues have tripled um, you know if you count from two thousand and seven suicide attempts by uh, Uh, Young women, actually, unfortunately, successful suicides um, have doubled, um, or if you take the average over the course of 10 years, they've gone up by 70%. Um, and so we do try to be understanding of, of where students are coming from. Um, we do talk about everything from mass incarceration, you know, to the horrible, um, you know, uh, police shooting videos you can see, uh, you know, on a, what seemed like a daily basis for a while. There, uh, student debt is something that I talk about. I don't, unfortunately I didn't make it too much into the book, but I talk about um, um, a lot because um, I'm very concerned with that. Um so on the one hand we we really are trying to be as understanding as possible but the, on the other hand when people say kind of like they think they can kind of just win the argument by saying oh people since the dawn of time have been saying you know that kids have it uh easier today than they had it but the thing is it's a pretty safe bet to say that our grandparents had it harder than us. <laughs> um, if you just look at the the the, the 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 reign of history, you know, like my my great grandparents were serfs. You know, my great great grandparents were serfs. Like they, they they objectively had it harder. I mean, anybody born before you know the nineteen thirties had no access to. Um, uh, sorry, uh, uh, not born and for, but you know it, it that it lived that back then. You didn't have penicillin. You didn't have you know basic um access to painkillers um, you know the 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 the, the 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 likelihood of dying in childbirth was incredibly high so what we're saying is it, it it would be helpful to have techniques that help us get some amount of you know perspective on this stuff while at the same time We talk about the importance of ancient wisdom traditions, and even if we're not living a life as sort of terrifying as it might have been during, say, like the Roman Empire, where a lot of Stoic thought comes from, um, we can still learn from these wisdom traditions, and none of them tell you Get in your own head, isolate yourself, um, and listen to the, you, listen to the, the, the loudest, most worried, most anxious thoughts in your head. Uh, but they also tend to be realistic about practices you can use to sort of tap that down. And we're doing, and, and our opinion is, in, rather than tapping that down, we're doing the exact opposite, and we're we're, we're spinning it all up.
1: So on this issue of student anxiety, um, th- it is true that uh, I'll give my own example. I was very lazy about. Um, college applications and I got rejected in a few schools and so, so why don't you try applying to Penn? And Penn said, well, we want your SAT scores. I couldn't find them. And the last minute, you know, I got them, I found them somewhere. So I get into <laughs> university of Pennsylvania. It happens to be the best architecture school. I studied architecture. I went to uh-huh. the college and then architecture. It happened to be the best architecture school of the 20th century. Who knew? But today, uh, there's this incredible need among certain class of people to get into an elite school. You know, yep. you have to get into Harvard, Penn, Princeton, Yale. Um, what? What's your take on that? Uh, do you see this um, striving for, you know, you have to go to a, a pr- private school, you have to go to an Ivy League college, you have to go to – Study law or management at Stanford or Harvard. You have to Mm -hmm. get a job at McKinsey. Um, What do you? Is this something you and Jonathan, you know, looked into? And do you have feelings for what it means for our students today?
0: Absolutely, and and that's one of the reasons why we interviewed Julie Lifscott Hames, um, who wrote a book called How to Raise an Adult. Um, she is uh, she's someone I met when I was when I was in law school at Stanford, and her whole experience with the issues we talk about come from being the dean of freshmen or the dean of students from about 2000 to uh, 2012, 2013. And what she saw was um, an an increasing. Where where was are, she
1: dean of students?
0: Oh, sorry, it's at Stanford. Okay. And that um, what she saw was the students coming in. Um, at first, sometimes their parents would come with them, but it was kind of weird when their parents came with them on the first day. And then that just increased and increased. Um, it became more, more normal for everyone to show up with their parents. Um, and but the dark side of that was you ended up with these you know brilliant, highly accomplished students who were kind of a mess because they were they, they felt that they always had to ask their parents for. Um, advice. And really, what they'd had burned into their head was that you're not competent to really make these decisions on your own. And I am really sensitive to the fact that um, it's not crazy for someone to think that, um, you know, as the uh, middle class kind of hollows out, um, that you have to get to sort of like the life raft of the fancy schools as one of the things that can protect you from, you know, falling uh falling out of the uh, you know middle upper class or upper class um and i i i, I get that i get that tension um and and I think that part of the problem that we're seeing with, with and because most of the problems we're seeing with regards to to uh, the kind of speech related issues um, coming from students tend to come from the more uh, more elite colleges. And I do genuinely feel for some of these students because, like I said, they're they're kind of like built like heat seeking rockets. They're they're de- you know dead set. They're scheduled from you know the time they're very young to have the capacity to get into some of these fancy schools, which requires this kind of intensive uh the, the, the preparation process um and the result is you know anxious kids who haven't had enough time to decompress who who would think that, that but who rely on their parents way too much because they haven't been taught um some basic life skills. So we think there's a lot of truth um, to that. Certainly like I had the great advantage of being a first generation American. So like I had no expectation or sense of what my life was supposed to look like. Right. Um I and I and this is one of the reasons why we really emphasize that this is stuff that parents are doing wrong. I I think that they while I can see some sense in kind of the idea that kind of you got to get get them to the life raft to the fancy schools. I just can't believe that a well-adjusted, um, smart student who goes to a you know uh, a good college as opposed to the most elite is not going to uh, you know survive in, in, in the coming economy.
1: Right. So you talked about um, the. Uh, I think you did use the term. It's in the book, Free Range Kids. Yeah. And <laughs> so I've been in New York since. Um, Oh, around 1967, something like that. Grew up on Long Island. Then I spent six years in Philadelphia at Penn and then moved to New York. So I've lived through the uh, increase in crime up to, you know, 2,400 murders a year in, I guess, the 80s. And it's now down to 240, you know. So a 90 percent drop. I mean, my students used to get picked off. You know, we used to lose a couple of students uh, uh, and now, you know, and then, you know, the police would come to the campus and they'd say, don't walk on the main avenue unless you're in a group. (laughs) I was in a group of four when we got mugged. So that's all gone. But we we remember, and it's come up in the news again, Etienne Pates, who um, was a little boy who wanted to walk to – uh, his school and his mother let him, and he got kidnapped and probably murdered and so how how, how do we balance the the risks and benefits on this anti anti-frag- because antifragile means subject to stress, you get stronger, but that means subject to things getting broken, you get stronger. so how much broken can we tolerate?
0: Yeah, I, I, and there's a big, uh, there, there's an important distinction that we we draw in the book, and we spend uh, some time on it, it and we we're very clear here. Since most of the problems that we're seeing um, are uh, more prevalent in some more of more the of the more elite colleges. Um, that we are primarily talking about, you know, the kind of paranoid parenting that 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 that, um, that a lot of these students come from. The challenges faced by more sort of working class um, uh, and, and bottom half and quartile economic uh, uh, social economic status are very different, and that's where you're looking at things called ACEs, um, adverse childhood experiences, uh, and that, and those are everything from. You know, genuine, uh, you know, not, not, not being able to have food, um, physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, all of these kind of things that, um, nobody in the world would, uh, argue are actually beneficial to anyone. Um, and so when you look at, uh, you know, there seems to be some kind of, in between state where you're not talking about children having um, a, the, the kind of serious ACEs that actually can really um, have uh, 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 are documented to have long-term negative effects on your health but at the same time there there surely is some kind of happy <laughs> a uh, happy space in between that and the the completely paranoid parenting which is so far out of whack to where we actually live what, like uh, the the irony of the of the current sort of brand of, of of paranoid parenting is that it comes at a time when uh the country is that, you know um, murder wise it hasn't been this safe since you know the uh, i think the late 50s early 60s um, when it comes to accidental death and all that kind of stuff I, it, it's arguably never been safer um to uh, to to have children um, and I think uh, parents have to start figuring out that um, uh, that there is a danger in what we call safetyism, sort of like worshipping safety per, 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 presents dangers of its own and if you 're worried about protecting your kid then you 've really got to help them let, let them figure out ways to sort of live in the real world on their own. Nothing makes them... They're not really going to be safer if your plan is just to sort of hover over them your whole life because you can't actually... You can't actually do that.
1: Right. What... um, We're not quite there yet, but uh, for years I've been asking my students... uh, I do a course on computer technology, its impact on society and architecture. What, Mm -hmm. What do you feel... About the idea that at some point you'll be able to embed a chip in your kid, and then uh, if something does go wrong, it'll it'll beep your cell phone, or you can track them, or whatever.
0: That stuff scares scares me to death. Um, the uh, and unfortunately, we find that parents are um, doing some of this with, with with the cell phones, and you know, I am. Pretty okay with the idea of having, you know, um, uh, house rules about you know when the Wi-Fi gets shut off at night, for example, um, because we do think that some of the anxiety and depression is coming from kids up late night on social media sites and in the constant state of junior high school style, you know, verbal verbal battle. Um, but the idea of having this this constantly sort of um, the, the sort of mini Big Brother state where they, they know everywhere you go. Um, it creates something that, that uh, we call in the book um, this concept of moral dependency. That essentially you're always you're always being watched, and therefore you're always looking for, you know, big brother or big mother or father to um, res- uh, to intervene in conflicts for you. And that's really teaching something, uh, teaching them something that you don't want. People who are supposed to be functioning citizens in a, in a robust pluralistic democracy to learn, so we, we we talk about you know the ethic of play, but not just about it being good for students that essentially part of the whole idea of free play is to learn how to navigate conflict you know with your peers on your own and without recourse to you know um, we, we, I want um, someone to use coercive power in here, so we we talk about some of this as being bad training. For living in a free society, and certainly, like the idea of having a chip in you, so your mom can know, you know, if you're over at your girlfriend's place, is uh, uh, it's modeling people for a society I don't think any of us would want to live in.
1: Right, but and we're seeing China getting there, mm-hmm. where apparently the Chinese government tracks everything everybody does and gives mm-hmm. them scores for how compatible they are with their with their society.
0: Boy. Um, um, yeah. Well and, and the extent to which we can we can track people here um is, is already pretty distressing.
1: <laughs> right. Are you um were you a fan of Calvin and Hobbes, the cartoons?
0: Oh of course. Calvin brilliant, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and and how how what a miserable person they made Calvin, but how incredibly funny and ruthless they made him. Well, it's and a, it's he a brilliantly would, written
1: show. He would go out and play in the woods. And yeah. you know, look at frogs in the pond and carry his stuffed tiger through the woods. And I, you know, I talked to my my contemporaries and I, I did that. You know, we had a woods we could play in. There were ponds. We had a big rope you could swing over it. Um, I remember almost losing my shoe into the pond. I thought, how would I get that back? Uh, and um, um, that whole, you know, a little patch of nature, that one can play in Mm -hmm. yeah so listen um, tell us uh, we should start wrapping up tell us uh, uh, again what has been more about the reception of your book where people can find more information is there a website dedicated to the book uh, where we can find more about you more about Jonathan Haidt Uh, what more should our listeners know
0: Absolutely. Well, the final uh, uh, a chunk of the book is all about solutions and what we can actually do. And we're very clear in that, that, like, listen, this is just preliminary. We're, we're, we're just looking into these problems now, um, and we want feedback from people who read the book on how we can do better as a society for um, younger people. Uh, and we have resources at coddling dot com. We we got that website partially because since we're not huge fans of the name, we want to turn it into kind of like a little bit of like a horror movie kind of trope. Um, as we, I uh, think it's you know sort of funny. Right. Um, you can, if you're concerned about free speech on campus, um, the uh, fire dot org is my organization. Um, you can see if where you're planning to send. Uh, your children, or where you're planning to attend yourself, has had speech codes or free speech controversies. Um, you might be surprised that oftentimes people who think their school has. It has no blemishes on its record, find out that they just had a really scandalous case the year before. Mm. <laughs> um, so the fire.org, uh, you can also find things like the Chicago Statement on there, which is a wonderful statement for academic freedom written by um, for Professor Jeff Stone at the University of Chicago that we think every school in the country should adopt. Um, for a lot of the topics we're talking about here, you can also go to letgrow.org. Um, Letgrow is a nonprofit started by um, our friend, Lenore Scanese, the famous uh, free-range mom that talks about ways to get parents together to to allow them the kind of childhood that creates independence and resilience and, you know, happiness and creativity, undermines <laughs> anxiety and depression. Um, so definitely check them out as well. Um, those are some of the best resources I, I, I can offer.
1: Yeah. Uh, so one that occurs to me when, when um, something you said clicked it, but... There's a piece in the New York Times by Adam Grant about a year or so ago, yep. uh, called "How If You." So you go to nytimes.com and then search on "How to Raise a Creative Child." Yep. Step one: back off. <laughs> <laughs> right. Actually, it begins with uh, talking about these super kids who. Uh, do well in school go to the top uh go to the top ivy colleges go to the top uh, law schools and business management schools and then don't have spectacular careers they do well but they have ordinary mm-hmm. careers compared to the the people who you know because sort of being on that path of that will get you the top of everything Means keeping happy those people who will get you into yep. these top places. And keeping people happy means not questioning them, means not developing mm-hmm. your own thinking.
0: Right. Yeah, and that's something that there's a, there's a very sad book um, called Against Education by Brian Kaplan. And I always read books that I think I'll disagree with because um, uh, because I think that's what a healthy person does. Um, and in this book, one of the arguments that he makes is that um, uh, that college really kind of shows a couple of characteristics, and one of the main ones is it tests you for is conformity.
1: <laughs> uh-huh.
0: and, and it's hard to say he's wrong. And when you look at the path that a lot of the... The students who want to go straight to, like you said, McKinsey, you know, follow it. It is it is a path that we're essentially you're, you're proving sort of like your easiness and, and <laughs> uh, obedience to to those around us. And I think that a lot more employers, and I say this as someone who has fifty employees himself, that um, uh, that you're going to start finding that some of the most you know creative, resilient, interesting ones are not the ones who went to the um, you know the cookie cutter factories, the, the ones who went went to schools that um, might not have been on your radar previously, um, you know, we, we, we've been really lucky to have a lot of um, you know, employees from state schools who, are, who have a lot more sort of sense of uh, an initiative, and they're much more creative in the way they do their advocacy. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, I think that um, I agree.
1: Yeah, let, let me just do one more digression. There's a sure. beautiful uh, article by Tom Wolfe in his book, Hooking Up, about... Uh. Um, Oh, Jesus. Guy who invented the the uh, computer chip. Uh, founder of Intel. Anyway.
0: I'm not sure. I'm not uh, sure that is. <laughs>
1: um, Not occurring to me. But he went to Grinnell. And uh-huh. he, at Grinnell, there was a professor who was into transistors and got the transistor manufacturers to send him some for the kids to play with. And then he goes to MIT. MIT didn't know about transistors. Oh and, wow! Uh, so here's Grinnell, a small engineering school, being way ahead of uh, way ahead of MIT. So you never know where those creative niches, uh, yeah. those creative niches are going to be. So yep, agreed. Uh, once again, my guest has been Greg Lukinoff, and no, pronounce it for me.
0: <laughs> it's uh, Luke Yanov.
1: Luke Yanov, great. Yep. And he, along with Jonathan Haidt, wrote the book, The Coddling of the American Mind How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. And uh, Greg, thank you for being with us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Signing off. Take
0: care.